Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at the Antidote Festival in 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My crime is journalism. Me first introduce myself, Peter Grester. I'm a journalist and now an academic, um, and my esteemed panel. First of all, we have Maria Ressa, indisputably the most famous or perhaps infamous journalist in the Philippines. She is the editor of Rappler.com and its chief executive officer. She also previously spent several decades working as a lead investigative reporter for CNN in South Asia, or Southeast Asia, and you were specialized in covering terrorism, I believe. Then we have Irina Borogan, who is a Russian investigative journalist who covers the operations of the Russian security services. Uh, Irina is the co-founder of the website agentura.ru, which chronicles the service's activities. Uh, last year, she and Andrei Soldatov co-authored a book called The New Nobility, which uh, about the restoration of Russia's security state and the enduring legacy of the KGB. And she's also authored another book called Red Web, The Kremlin's War on the Internet. Irina Borogan, who, sorry, um, we have got uh, Lena Atala, forgive me. Lena and I have a special relationship. Uh, we first encountered one another, and I say encountered very advisedly back in 2014 when I saw Irina across on the other side of a courtroom in Egypt. Irina is um, the, the founder and editor of Madamasa, uh, an Egyptian English language website. She was previously the managing editor of the Egypt Independent prior to its closure in 2013. She's now very active in the fight against the restrictions of honest journalism. And finally, on the end, we have um, a man who is something of a giant in journalism, Steve Cole, uh, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. Now, Steve also still practices as a journalist, working for one of the most respected magazines in the world, The New Yorker. He's also won two Pulitzer Prizes, and he, is, he was also the managing editor of the Washington Post from 1998 until 2005. Also the, the author of eight books. Ladies and gentlemen, it is impossible to imagine a more distinguished panel. Before we get underway, I really just wanted to do a little bit of scene setting for you. Um, of the countries that we have here on, represented on stage, Egypt, uh, the, the, the RSF, Reporters Sans Frontieres, uh, does an annual survey of countries um, and their press freedom. It ranks them uh, from 1 to 180. Uh, Egypt is, sits at 163, where, this is where 180 is at the very bottom of the scale. Um, that's, and it has the third highest number of journalists in prison currently with 25. Russia is, sits at 149. They've got five journalists in prison. The Philippines at 134, curiously with no journalists in prison. We'll talk about that shortly. And the United States uh, sits at 48, um, perhaps not terribly honorably behind Botswana, Tonga, Chile, and Romania. That's good company, Steve. You've got a bit of work to do to catch up. <laughs> um, oh, yes, and, and slipped several places too. Australia, by, by the way, for the record, sits at number 21, but that's also down several places. 
Last year, the CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, counted 54 journalists who were killed for their work. Now, that's a conservative count because it includes, or it excludes, rather, um, people who were killed, journalists who were killed in cases where the motives are unclear, and it also excludes uh, media workers, uh, those who work with, within the media industry but don't fit the CPJ's very narrow definition of journalists. So with that scene, with that background in mind, let me first ask Maria. Um, Maria, you've been charged with 11 separate offences, including cyber libel, tax evasion, violating foreign ownership laws, and so on. You've been arrested twice, posted bail eight times. You've given the Filipino government at least, and we were talking about this earlier, the equivalent of at least about 90,000 Australian dollars in bail and bond. You're even more of a criminal than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, you set the standard, Peter. No, I... <laughs> 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 I, I, I don't know how to deal with this new world except to just, as you did, stand up and say it is wrong. It tests who you are. These are numerous uh, legal acrobatics to have these cases filed. In a, a little more than a year, every month, we had a case filed against us. Um, so <laughs> I'm shocked, but living through it, walking through it. Do you see it? I mean... That obviously, the, the Filipino government insists that this, it is just enforcing the law, that you've broken the law, that, that all it's doing is, is seeing due process take place. I think they want the veneer of due process, but you just have to look at the context and the track record. Um, we were, five charges of tax evasion were snapped on us about six months after we were given an award by government for being a top corporate taxpayer. So they forget that part. And then on cyber libel, this charge, uh, the, act, the, the investigators themselves, the lawyer of the investigators threw this charge out because it's for a story that was published seven years ago, four months before the law we allegedly violated was enacted. So the government's own lawyers threw it out. What they did is they just took the man who made that decision, he lost his job, and then refiled it, and now I'm facing, that case is in trial. We've had four days of uh, witnesses on the prosecutor's side. So, a form of judicial harassment, as far as you can I call it weaponization of the law. You know, and it followed, in our case, the weaponization of social media. Social media is the fertilizer for lies. Um, and if people believe it, then you, come, you can, since the soil is now softer, you can come and replace the word journalist with criminal. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is interesting, because in, in, in Egypt, Lena, um, Egypt, as I mentioned earlier, has 25 journalists currently in prison, although when I was there, they were very quick to point out that there were no journalists in prison, only criminals and terrorists. Right. You haven't been imprisoned. You have found yourself being beaten up by the security services. Um, but I'm just wondering, the criminalization of journalism, how, how does that affect the way that you, that you work? I think it's been harder and harder to be able to find uh, people who are willing to pay the cost of doing the job uh, in, in Egypt today. So uh, a lot of the people think twice when uh, we open vacancies, for example, at the organization I, I co-founded with my colleagues, and you know we need reporters to join us, we need young people to train, to still believe in the power of journalism, even at these, these moments of crisis, and a lot of the people 
are uh, worried of uh, joining an organization that might land them uh, in prison. So that's one thing. Uh, sources who typically collaborate uh, with us more and more feel, uh, feel scrutinized now and you know, think twice before accepting to talk to us or before accepting to give us information. So it's been, for the past six years, the duration of um, our existence as a media, but also the, the, the six years that marked the major transformation um, in terms of the media landscape and the broader political and civil li liberties in Egypt, these six years, I have seen um, more and more challenges of just being able to do the basic job every day, so. You, you, you mentioned six years, when did it begin? It, for me, it began in 2013, uh, with the political transformation uh, that happened in Egypt. Uh, we did not have the most open landscape when it comes to media freedoms or political freedoms in general, but we had the brief opening particularly during the years of the revolution that started in 2011, when you know, we saw multiplicity of voices, diversity of media, diversity, people from the margins occupying the mainstream and saying things. And then there was the change of the regime in 2013, which could not carry itself out without massive restrictions on the public space. And we saw some very clear messages. I mean, our case was a classic example. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. In your case also, we always, we typically would say that uh, people who uh, are, are foreign journalists, for example, can at best be deported if, um, if, if they bother the government, for example. So what was uh, one of the signs of how this was an unprecedented, how this is an unprecedented period in terms of the restrictions is that there was the boldness of jailing um, foreign journalists, uh, basically. So you could tell that um, there were no limits to how far this can go, so. How does it feel to be operating in that environment? Uh, it's, it feels challenging, but I say all the time that if I weren't doing this job, I, I wouldn't really stay in Egypt. This is my main way of navigating uh, home. I don't feel it would be possible to exist otherwise. Um, so I think if at one point my newspaper gets shut down, uh, it might be over for me to... to I, I don't feel there is a point in uh, doing anything else at this point. So. It must create an atmosphere of fear. I mean, the, the, we're not talking about um, simply slapping fines. We're talking about something much more serious than that. We're not talking about closing down the business even. We are, they are doing all sorts of, all sorts of things, uh, which is creating this um, atmosphere of fear, but at the same time, I feel a certain kind of privilege, maybe this, you know, uh, outreach to, you know, Western media, Western set settings, maybe is giving a certain layer of protection. So I would be wrong to believe that I am the most targeted at this uh, point as a person or as a media. The proof is that we still exist uh, somehow. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it won't be over at some point that is completely unpredictable for all of us. So. I'd like to talk about the, the role of, of international pressure shortly, but let me ask you, Arena, first. Um, you've been reporting extensively on the Russian security services yourself, and anybody who has been following Russian politics would also understand that that itself is a fairly risky proposition. You've been um, detained and investigated by the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB now. Can you tell us what happened there? 
Oh, unfortunately, I was not detained. I was interrogated. Interrogated. But um, uh, it happened uh, in 2002 when a huge uh, hostage-taking crisis happened in Moscow. A terrorist got uh, in a city like this. Terrorist got uh, about 1,000 people, and uh, when the rescue operation was finished, uh, we found out, and everybody found out that. Uh, there were, uh, 131 people were killed, but most of them, uh, one, uh, 126 uh, people died uh, not from not from the terrorists. They, were, uh, they, were, they weren't killed by the terrorists. They were poisoned by poisoning gas, sleeping gas that was pumped into the into the city. And uh, I, my, my colleague Andrei Soldatov and I, uh, we investigated the story and published our investigation. And very soon, uh, the, of course, we blamed, uh, we blamed, uh, uh, we pushed the blame on the security sources who were responsible for the rescue operation and who decided to pump, uh, pumped sleeping gas into the uh, into the city and uh, and didn't predict uh, the ambulances and doctors uh, what antidote should be used. So there were not enough antidote, and people just died in front of uh, in front of our eyes because we were too close to the place. And uh, when we published that, the FSB, the main security service in Russia uh, that was responsible uh, for the operations, uh, came into our editorial office and uh, they said that they opened an investigation on the stock. Uh, on, the, on the other story, but it, it was clear that it was uh, a pretext. And they seized our computers, and uh, uh, Andrei Soldatov and I, we were, uh, we were summoned into the, FSB, uh, uh, into the FSB building for uh, harsh interrogation. But uh, the point is uh, that this building, uh, it, uh, the building where the investigative department of the security service is located is the same building where the prison, the FSB prison is located. And it, it used to be KGB prisons where uh, many dis Soviet dissidents uh, served their sentences. So that was a, a, such an experience for me. And yet it hasn't deterred you from your work? No. No, they didn't. <laughs> Why not? I mean, that takes courage to continue. That. Uh, because um, at that time, it was many years ago, it was not so, uh, the situations uh, with media in Russia wasn't so bad as now. And it was only 2002, Putin only came to power. And uh, it was quite free environment. They, uh, they Putin only started his, uh, his repression. So uh, many journalists in Russia take, took our side that time. And uh, I, we felt, we felt quite, um, quite defended by our colleagues, and uh, eventually, uh, case just uh, check, the, the investigations has fallen out, and our computer uh, and the FSB returned us our computers. We, we never worked on them, <laughs> never used them. <laughs> Steve, what we've seen here is is three examples where the state, in various ways, seems to have used the law to shut down uncomfortable journalism. Is this something that we're seeing globally? Is there a trend here? Uh, it is. And first, though, I just want to express my deep admiration for all three of my co-panelists, really inspiring your courage and persistence. Thank you.
It's happening in the United States, too, in a way that's quite worrying, and in Australia, as we can perhaps refer to the raids uh, on the offices and, and a home of a journalist, uh, there's a similar pattern happening in the United States, which literally speaks to the title of this panel, which is uh, a creeping set of cases that are criminalizing the very act of professional reporting where it touches upon uh, national security information or classified information. This, unfortunately, has been going on even before the election of 2016 and the rise of a president who is openly hostile to the press. Uh, even during the Obama administration, this was starting to happen. Uh, now we have the prosecution, the indictment of Julian Assange uh, in the United States. Um, you know, whether you think he's a journalist or not, that case is going to make law that's going to affect all journalists in a, in a uh, difficult way. And I think um, what worries me is that um, although the United States has a reputation for constitutional and legal protections uh, that are very strong, in fact, they're very young. Uh, they really only go back to the 1960s, and they're based on a political consensus that seems to be fading. Uh, and so I think we have to recognize this is a, not a, uh, a struggle only of governments that, uh, that don't hold or attempt to hold open and free elections. Uh, it's also happening in our societies as well. Um, and then, of course, the other thing to mention is the atmosphere since 2016. The president who calls the press enemy of the people, and it's a form of incitement. Uh, it is certainly uh, correlated with violent attacks on the press so that, that represent a departure from what we'd seen before. Of course, there was a disgruntled um, customer of a newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland, who walked into the newsroom and shot dead five journalists where they worked and there was a bombing attack against CNN. So this is an atmosphere that is really a departure, and I do think the rhetorical environment has something to do with it. But let me play the devil's advocate. The governments are saying that, that we operate in an increasingly dangerous environment, particularly in an environment where um, terrorism and asymmetric war makes it very, very difficult for, for the security services to protect us, and that in the consistent issue across a lot of these, these countries, including Australia, is that national security is at risk. We need that national security must surely take a higher priority than even journalistic freedom, as much as we might love them. Well, I'd say two things. Um, first, the government routinely overestimates how much information it needs to keep secret in order to protect uh, its citizens. This is just almost in inevitable in the institutional life of secret organizations. But secondly, um, the press and the government in the United States have functioned successfully around um, informal conversations about se sensitive or timely technical information that, that might really put a life in danger. I, I was a senior editor at the Washington Post on 9-11. I had conversations with senior government officials when we would learn uh, details about ongoing operations. and. It was uh, an informal discussion in which it was my judgment, independent judgment, as to what served the public interest and what kinds of technical details about a frequency or a, the timing of something uh, should be withheld in order to protect the security of those involved or of, of the country. And we have operated this way successfully for 30 or 40 years, so the idea that what, what's required now is a series of prosecutions in which journalists are themselves charged as co-conspirators in espionage crimes is, is uh, I think, unsupportable. Irina, 
you've, it's, it also extends in a lot of ways even to things like the archives. I mean, I know you were talking earlier about the difficulty of getting access to, to archives. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's affected uh, your research? Archives is a great source of information uh, when you are writing about security services, at least. You can't, you can't know what's going on right now, but at least you can, uh, you can know something about what happened two, five, 10, 50 years ago. In Russia, uh, documents, archives, information in Russia, it's a terrible problem. It always, it always was, but uh, there was a good time in the 90s when uh, the new democratic president Yeltsin opened uh, some archives, even security services arch archives for a while. But when Putin came to power in the 2000s, in 2000 uh, and after this period, he, uh, the security services and uh, started to classify archives, the new process of classifying archives. So now it's very diff difficult to get access to any documents. Even, uh, 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 let me give you one example. I need some documents about the Soviets, uh, about, the, uh, about the activity of the Soviet secret police in the searches. In the searches of the 20th centuries. And uh, I, I went to archives, party archives, and asked, uh, this profile on this person or that profile on that person. And, and uh, people in archives told me that uh, all of these documents were classified and they're not anymore in public. Uh, they're, 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 they're not anymore in public access. You can't get access to them. That's, uh, that's what we have in Russia because it's it's long tradition of classifying your past in order to by the totalitarian regime and now uh, authoritarian state also inherited this. Uh, the idea uh, to classify everything in order to create the new version of history favorable of the authorities. So it's about controlling the message is about controlling access to information, but using national security as a, as a framework for that. National security is a big deal in Russia because it's also, uh, it also go, go back into the Soviet times. And because we have, we really had two very harsh wars uh, on the North Caucasus, and uh, it was followed by uh, many. Uh, many, many uh, terrorist attacks, uh, even in the city, uh, in, in city like Moscow and St. Petersburg. So uh, this pretext, national security, is always accepted very well by the public. And uh, in this situation, we journalists, we are in a very difficult position because the security services and the authorities always use this, that uh, uh, Info, uh, information could be accessible for terrorists and people who are going to attack us. So you journalists should be should keep silence on this, on on this issues, on that issue. And uh, the law on state secrecy also very harsh, uh, and it getting worse and worse every year. So if if any any journalist going to follow this law, even even pro Kremlin journalist, he uh, he or she just can't walk completely, because it's impossible. Everything is, uh, could be a subject of secret in Russia now. Of course, security law is just one aspect of state control. And Maria, you've been on the receiving end of, frankly, outrageous campaigns online, which you recognize is something that's also been a part of state control. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think um, almost everything everyone has said is connected, right? And the key part of this is that 
uh, we're at an existential moment for democracy because information is power. That's something journalists have always known, right? So if you can control the information, if you can control the facts, then you recreate reality. And I, for me, the biggest change from 2002, 2003 to today is technology. And what's happened is that these online attacks, and you know, I hope you never have to go through what I went through. It was an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour for exposing the propaganda machine. Just, in just pause for a moment, and I just want everyone to think about that. 90 hate messages per hour, that's that's a rate of, what, one every 45 seconds. I couldn't respond fast enough, so I just started counting. Because at the beginning, I was actually trying res to respond, and then I realized the end goal, they weren't conversing with me, they were pounding me to silence. That's, that's not just because you're rather unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's definitely, what we've done is, in the first two weeks or so, was to go back over every single thing we've done. Are the stories factually correct? Is the data supporting that? And we got inspiration from what the Ukraine did as a response to Russian disinformation. Because these tactics of disinformation, if you pound something a million times, it becomes fact. A lie becomes a fact. Russia first used it against its people. This tactic spread 2014, 2016, right? And then, and then after that, I realized that if you can make this room believe that there's only one person here on stage, then the people who actually say there are five, you overwhelm them with the people who believe there's only one person on stage. Mm -hmm. You can't ever have a public space where they can debate each other. So that's the core. If information is power, if we cannot agree on the facts, you cannot have truth, you cannot have trust, you cannot have democracy. But one of the great selling points of social media and the internet was the democratization of information, the greater access of information. It was supposed to, to give us all access to information and, and decentralize power from the state which we forgot one crucial thing, which is that in the past, everything printed was vetted. And, well, most everything. But um, facts, the gatekeepers were there, right? When the distributors of news shifted from news groups to tech platforms, they took, they became the world's largest distributor of news, but they forgot the gatekeeping power. And what actually spreads fastest on social media are lies laced with anger and hate in each of our societies. I'm sure the two of you have felt that the same, maybe not 90, but worse in different ways, right? So um, the other thing is, please understand for us, Rappler was built around that idea. Rappler was a startup in 2012, and uh, the whole idea was we build communities of action. We married the technology to civic engagement because as a journalist, I was tired of just throwing stories into a black hole. I wanted to help build institutions bottom up. But that's, that's what I was gonna say. You, you, you depend on the very system that you're struggling with now. Yeah, we're frenemies. <laughs> <laughs> because think about it, Australia, you are slightly lucky because you're, you're, the Philippines is the top country 
globally that uses both the internet, we spend more than 10 hours on the internet, and social media, three years running, we've been the top con country to use social media. Australia is just slightly below the global average, so your news groups are stronger. But you're starting to feel the effects. These tactics that we are feeling, they're coming soon to a democracy near you, i.e. you. <laughs> <laughs> Lena, I see you, you've been nodding in recognition and acknowledgement of a lot of what, what Marie's been saying. Yeah, I think... Uh, I totally recognize the problem with social media and you know in Egypt also we lived through this transformation when you know social media at the beginning at a time when uh, before the 2011 uprisings uh, social media was an important outlet um, alter an alternative to the lack of political organizations and spaces for people to express themselves and this was really the space for the margins to come and say things that people wouldn't read in mainstream media. And what's happening right now is more of a reversal whereby social media is much more of a reflection of reality as we live it, as opposed to it being a site of alternative arrangements in many ways. And um, at the same time, it's also becoming a site of amplification of those who are already very powerful in many ways. What do we do with this is, I don't think our delusion can, uh, can have us afford retreating from social media because it continues to be also an important space for expression. It's, it becomes a question of monitoring closely what gets said there, but also not entirely uh, relying on it. So again, returning to the idea that uh, a media organization is uh, essentially a political organization, especially in an authoritarian setting where you don't have much spaces of engagement and of debate. So we don't let online, uh, social media basically replace the work of community building that needs to happen on the ground. Uh, and that's, way, that's why we care so much about being present on the ground as opposed to just publishing stuff online or working from abroad, for example, which could be a solution to some extent. It's very important for us to exist, to be present, to gather people around what we are doing, while also trying to disseminate to a larger audience on social media. But Steve, this seems to me to be a part of a part of the problem. Problem seems to be what is ultimately a shift in balance of power, uh, where the media was powerful, but in a diffuse kind of way. But social, what social media has done is is degrade that and gave, given the government a great deal more power and, and authority. Do you do you see that? Yeah, I do. I think when you started this section, you you referred to the euphoria about social media when they first emerge and they're democratizing power and potential and they do have those effects and they are salutary. At the same time, there was this utopian thinking around social media, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's familiar when new disruptive media technologies come along. When radio was born, a lot of people predicted it was going to make society uh, you know, much better and, and that war would go away and that communities would form. Same thing happened with television. If you go back and read the predictions of how now everyone is going to sit in front of their television and be better educated and they were all going to be better citizens and they were going to vote more <laughs> intelligently. And I'm afraid we human beings just don't live up to those, those <laughs> expectations. And, and the problem fundamentally in relation to journalism with social media is what the others have referred to, which is that media publishers, uh, you know, with all their weaknesses and their failures and their imperfections, the news organizations that 
uh, were driven professionally to inform the public, lost control of the distribution of their content to these social media platforms that did not see themselves as curators of the truth, but saw themselves as open and neutral to all comers. And not only did uh, their openness invite this vast amount of pollution and propaganda and hate speech that we see, but they also drowned out the meaning of this independent professional reporting. Uh, that's certainly what happened in the US in 2016. Now, you know, public attitudes shift pretty quickly in the industrialized democracies. You can see public fighting back about against this, certainly in Europe most effectively, and the companies are now under more pressure to clean up their act. But it's a structural problem. They control the distribution system of information in our societies. They are a public square, privately owned and operated for profit. That is really a difficult situation mm -hmm. for journalists. Marie, you, you've been nodding furiously there too. I mean, you, you rely on Facebook. You work very closely with Facebook, but you also acknowledge that they're the cause of a lot of your problems. Uh, they enabled the creation of Rappler. In our first few years until 2015, we grew 100 to 300% year on year, both in reach and revenue. But we also, because we lived on social media, saw and felt the impact immediately. I think the, let me just show you the, the methodology, right? If you astroturf a lie on social media. Can you explain what astroturfing is? It's not a term that. Like fake grass, right? So you take a lie and you just, you know, pound it. Mm -hmm. Say a lie a million times is the way I say it. <coughs> if you say a lie a million times, you've just changed the fact. That's a fact. And then once you do that, what happened to us? What's the lie? Maria's a criminal. Let's just say that, right? Even though I have 33 years of experience and I grew up in a public space as a journalist. Um, after that, then that lie that goes out through disinformation networks is picked up, moves into traditional media on the verge, on the verge of traditional media, a newspaper that is the chairman emeritus was named um, the head of public relations for the international community for the Duterte government, and then picked up by state media, and then a year later, the same charge comes out of the most powerful man in our country, President Duterte. By the time the lie travels in that one year, think about it like fertilizer, people believe it. And that's what you have to fight, whether, whether it's in the United States or whether it's here in Australia, let's just say 15% on the far right, 15% on the far left, and they're fighting for these people, many of whom don't really care because they're going about their lives. And then slowly this just grows. The algorithms of social media have pushed, I've watched it in my country, polarize us politically in ways that have never happened before. I've watched our values in six months change from being one of the first signatories of the UN Declaration of Human Rights to now saying it is okay to kill and to watch horrific numbers roll out. Michelle Bachelet at the UN says that at least 27,000 people have been killed in our brutal drug war since July 2016. There's a quote from President Duterte. It is at his inauguration where he said, just because you're a journalist, you're not exempted from assassination if you're a son of a bitch. Freedom of expression cannot help you if you've done something wrong. This climate of fear and violence, both in the real world and in the virtual world, um, allow the most powerful, and again, look at draconian measures of other democracies around the world, draconian measures against press freedom, right? 
why would they feel they can use a law that has always been there but has never been used against journalists? Because this is the end result globally of the erosion of democracy and the erosion of press freedom. What does it mean when Australian Federal Police march into a news or two news organisations? I mean, for us, it's been a topic of conversation in Australia, of course, and it's triggered two parliamentary inquiries. But from where you're sitting in the Philippines, what, is, what does it mean? Does it have any impact, any significance? It's shocking to me, and let me preface with I don't know all the details, but what I will say is Australia is one of the five eyes. You are, um, I worked very closely with Australia, the federal police and the Australian government during the East Timor. You guys are the good guys, right? And I think what's happened is a, this shift. Democracy has just moved as a whole further over here because President Trump definitely has an impact on the Philippines and democracies around the world. When he called CNN and the New York Times fake news, a week later, President Duterte called Rappler fake news. The fact that the global policeman for democracy, policeman is now far more draconian. Um, I think this, my reaction to it, not knowing all the details, is just could this have happened in a world where we all espouse the values that we say we do, right? Lena, does it matter to, to journalists in Egypt what other countries think of, of, of Egypt? Does it make a difference? I think it's, there isn't any consistency around it, but it's wrong to believe that it doesn't matter at all. Uh, I feel extremely isolated when uh, the question of uh, human rights, uh, freedom of expression uh, is completely ignored. Uh, and I feel much more endangered when this happens. This is not to say that uh, you know, this is our only mode of safety in some ways. I just also believe that uh, morally speaking, it feels much better when, um, when there is more of a universal engagement with different local struggles. Uh, and it feels weird when, that, when this doesn't happen. And while states, of course, are on the forefront of mobilizing uh, this criticism that puts other states to shame or under pressure, uh, what mobilizes these states in the first place to act is basically the civil society, the journalists out there who are uh, on the forefront of these, um, of these campaigns. I feel in your case, uh, it was more of a global civil society movement uh, that uh, was basically putting the pressure as opposed to actually states uh, putting the pressure on, uh, on our government. And I think this is an important distinction and something to reckon with and to keep remembering even at difficult points where we feel it's pointless or it's not working anymore or we have enough crisis at home um, so we shouldn't worry about what's happening elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, in our case, the, the social media campaign was extraordinary. I think the Free AJ staff hashtag had something like three billion impressions. Absolutely. It was phenomenal and that was because people engaged and, and we saw that pressure. And I know I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that, that social media engagement, that international pressure. But I also know that there are a lot of governments that were directly involved. President Obama got personally involved. The Australian foreign minister was very actively involved. We know that my other nationality, the Latvians, were, were very actively engaged. Um, Peter, can I ask you a question? And again about this, which is something Steve brought up, right? In the, our old world, the government, if it is a national security problem, will pick up the phone and call the news group, the head, and 
negotiated. It's a checks and balance, the checks and balances of society. Why did that not ha happen here? It's a very good question. I mean, what happened in our case was, was the governments did pick up the phone and spoke to Egyptians. Right. Had, but it took a while for that to get through. For, for that to work, and I think there was a lot of tension between what between the internal messaging and the internal politics and the external politics. But the point is that it was the international pressure that I think that inevitably had was the thing that where, where the, the costs of keeping us in prison were great became internationally, at least on an international scale, greater than the costs internally of letting us go. And it's when that balance shifted that we that we we, we were out. And I think this comes to the point, the central point, that, that the kind of consistent messages, when the whole world is, when, when there's a majority of democracies that are all pushing in the same positive direction, then, then it puts positive pressure on, on more authoritarian regimes. But conversely, when things are going, when the pressure is in the opposite direction, then it, let, it takes the brakes off. Uh, Irina, do you feel that international pressure matters in, this, in these sorts of Cases? Does, does international trends affect you in Russia? Because we tend to think of the Russian government as much more robust, much more resilient, to, resistant to international opinion. Uh, partly yes, uh, because uh, the Russian government uh, got more resi resilience to the international pressure uh, under they was put under sanctions after they were put under sanctions, uh, but. Uh, uh, the Russian government, the Kremlin, they are still very sensitive to the international pressure. International pressure is always good when it comes to the authoritarian regime. So, where does that leave us now? I mean, Maria, one of the things that you've spent a lot of time doing is thinking about how you, how you push back, how we create a system that might be more resilient, that might encourage and prioritize good journalism, civic engagement, and so on. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, know, that was a statement, not a question. <laughs> no, uh, I think we need to embrace technology because there's no going back. Think about it like our body politic democracies. We have a virus. It is spreading faster than our white blood cells can. We, the virus is killing us. It is killing us. And we have to find a solution. So how do, how do we do that? Um, I have short, medium, long term. Um, and the long term, of course, is education, medium term, media literacy. We will all get used to this. I don't think it's a coincidence that a Princeton University study said that people in my age group are the, are the older folks. Um, we spread fake news. We spread lies seven times more than the millennials, than the younger folks, um, on social media. But the short term, here's the thing in the short term. Right? News groups cannot galvanize civic society because we ourselves are constrained. Traditional news people, journalists, we believe we're not supposed to be activists. Lena said we should be activists. I was forced to be. I was unshackled when my own rights were violated. But the only people who can do something right now are the social media technology platforms. So uh, if they don't, I, I, 
keep appealing. I think this is enlightened self-interest. They broke democracy. They're going to have to fix it immediately. They are the gatekeepers. All of our news groups make calls. And um, the content moderation system that is in place right now, first of all, why even content moderation system? But David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, uh, has said that, well, don't itemize lists, no breasts, no, can't be naked, you know, the napalm girl. Uh, but that was a Filipino content moderator who took that down, by the way. Um, the, the, why not use the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for content moderation? That would lead to a far more complex world that we live in. I think old power has to come in at some point. These are governments, but they don't understand the technology. We people in our democracies don't understand the technology except in, in ways that we can't actually push for effective regulation. So this is our problem. How do you organize in the age of social media? Steve, they're your people. <laughs> oh yeah, they are, Steve. We're gonna, I mean... <laughs> um, We're such a force for good in the world, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Look, the question is, um, there is a lot of, I mean, what Maria has been talking about, conversations that are happening everywhere. Um, but it, it seems that it, it won't happen without government engagement. And, and the US government, at least right now, seems particularly disinclined to, to engage on these sorts of issues. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's complicated, but I think you're right. I think regulation is required. I think it's inevitable. It's on its way. The Europeans are way ahead of the United States. but. In time, uh, regulatory regimes will rise up and bite these companies if they don't fix it themselves, and they know that. Uh, they, they, there's, there's no longer just buying their way out of this problem. Um, secondly, I think their monopoly power uh, must be challenged. In the United States, their monopoly power is really a matter of existing law enforcement, which administrations have been reluctant to carry out. Um, and then there are other ways to respond more broadly to the fix we're in. I think. A hard one in the United States has been media solidarity and collective action. Uh, journalists are not very good about working together around these mm -hmm. things. Even standing up for someone who's insulted in a press conference, it's taken the U.S. press a little time to realize that they are in it together, and it's incomplete, but I think it's going to be necessary. It's a, it's a, new, it's a new muscle that the press is going to have to build. And then finally, you, you know, we've alluded to this in both uh, authoritarian societies and in the United States these days, one way to respond is, is to there just, a difference? Yeah, well, um, we're, it's a question. Uh, ask me at the end of a second Trump term. Um, Don't say that. Uh, but, you know, there's journalism itself. Uh, the paradox in the United States is that for all the pressure that uh, journalists are under and for all of the rhetorical uh, climate that's shifted, uh, we're enjoying a kind of renaissance of meaningful investigative reporting. Um, the Me Too movement wouldn't have happened without investigative reporting. It's touched so many institutions, so many people. Uh, the investigations into abuse in the Catholic Church is a global story that required investigative reporting because prosecutors failed. The institutions that you rely on to prevent these kinds of abuses of power, they failed. And journalism established itself as a necessary component of a just society. And we have to renew that every day by doing credible reporting that's accurate and that makes a difference and that affects the lives of people who have otherwise been left behind by their institutions. You, you, you say that...
And I applaud that too from the bottom of my heart. But, and there is a big fat but, the Columbia Journalism Review, your own organization's um, magazine, has its own surveys of trust in journalism. And in a, in a survey that I looked at uh, from late last year of the trust in, in various institutions, journalists were second from the bottom. And for those of you wondering, the bottom is Congress. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, we, it's, it's easy for us to talk about the technological challenges, but how much of this is a problem of our own making? A good, a good amount of it. I mean, trust is a function of credibility, and credibility is a function of performance. But, you know, I don't think journalists have ever been popular. And um, we've always ranked with the used, used car salesmen and the lawyers of the, of the world. And I think that hasn't uh, stopped us from also doing work, as in Watergate, as in the Catholic Church case, that the public recognizes, supports, and stands behind. So. I think um, trust is not necessarily the right measure. Um, it's really about doing uh, professional work uh, without fear or favor and earning your place uh, through the work you do. And, um, you know, all institutions except for the military in the United States have been losing trust over the last 20 or 30 years. And, and it's a very difficult concept uh, to measure. So I, I, it, it's concerning because of the political consensus that's crumbling. It's the political consensus that allowed legislatures in conservative states and liberal states to pass state law protections for journalists to protect confidential sources if they uh, are operating in the public interest. It's a Supreme Court only you know, a half a generation ago that passed the strongest uh, libel law from a journalist perspective probably in the world uh, involving public officials. It's the Pentagon Papers is the product of a big co conflict in my lifetime. And I, if you look back through the rest of the history of the Western world and certainly in the United States, we were never uh, that devoted to transparency, to independent journalism as we have been in the last 50 years. And so I, I think one of the things that the last two years uh, in Europe and the United States has reminded us is that history doesn't move in a straight line. We are going to be in a struggle and we may go backwards for a while. And I don't know how far back, how dark it's gonna be, but gotta keep fighting. But can I, can I add to this? I think that the mea, the mea culpa of journalists always um, doesn't take into account the disinformation networks that have been attacking journalists and attacking the fracture lines of society. The Mueller report lays this out. It isn't just about one election. It is about eroding trust in institutions, and that includes journalists. So I think that's the, the first. And then the second one in the Philippines, here's a lesson for you, and to pick up Steve's message of journalists collaborating. Our news groups tend used to compete with each other, but in the Philippines, we have a database that shows that news groups have now been pushed to the periphery of our information ecosystem and that the disinformation networks are actually smack in the center trying to create our Alex Jones, a version of Alex Jones, right? They haven't completely been able to do that, but again, we are a harbinger for you. We're the canary in the coal mine because 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. Mm. Collaboration was also created projects like the, the, the Panama Papers, which was an extraordinary piece of collaborative journalism. 
But Lena, I also wanted to speak to you because, I mean, for your, for Madame Massa, um, trust is absolutely essential to your survival and your existence. Is it enough? I think this is what keeps us going in the sense that I feel that my only gratification from doing the job is every time I feel um, a new uh, audience has come to us because they like this investigation so much. For example, we've done a lot of political reporting, but also the moment we started doing major work on corruption is the moment when we started attracting a whole set of new audiences who are very uh, centered on the, and interested and concerned with the question of who's stealing our money, for example. They don't care uh, about, you know, questions of democracy and political rule and all of that. They care, for example, about the theft of public money. And it, it was a revelation. So for me, I think audience and trust is, is very central. And what Steve is talking about made me think that whereas I, I agree that... Um, you know, a tradition of uh, hardcore investigations have basically defined uh, the true uh, values and nature of journalism. I feel that where we're lacking, lagging behind a bit is um, how we're dealing with the societies and the communities surrounding us. I feel that there is at the same time in parallel major questions, major flaws in the representation. Uh, in the craft of journalism that I feel is maybe uh, behind that distrust that we are talking about. That is, of course, symptomatic of broader mistrust in uh, institutions by and large, which is a modern-day crisis and everything. But also, I think we have to go back to where specifically uh, journalism is uh, at flaw. And I feel it also has to do with how journalists and journalism has crafted is its relationship vis-a-vis -vis the public, vis-a-vis -vis society, vis-a-vis -vis the communities it is serving. I feel like the relation is more or less clear when it comes to the authorities and power and all of that. And I feel like the lack of settlement is really um, concerns the relation with society and how we represent them and how, uh, how they come in our coverage, basically. That, that works up to a point, but um, there's a wonderful example, or tr deeply troubling example, if you like, of the kind of influence of state pressure on, on, on journalists. And I remember reading about the coverage of Mohamed Morsi's death. And Mohamed Morsi, for those of you who don't know, was the first democratically elected president in Egypt's history. The, he was the Muslim Brotherhood president before he was deposed. And he died in the middle of a trial um, earlier this year. And do you want to tell the story of, of how that was reported? So we reported, besides reporting about uh, his death um, in, in, um, in his dock inside the court, we also reported about the reporting, which was basically an identical um, 300 words that came out in most mainstream newspapers, uh, let alone uh, those newspapers that completely ignored the news altogether, or those newspapers that went on to call him a terrorist and so on. So that's how the coverage and, was about. And in those stories, in none of those stories, as I recall, that I, I examined, was, was he ever referred to as the former president? No, of course he wasn't referred to as the former president. He was referred to as uh, the defendant in the case uh, where he's accused of um, conducting spying and basically harming the national security of the country. So when you're the lone voice, when there are you know, one or two news organizations that are actually referring to him as the former president, placing the kind of context that the government clearly didn't want to have around that story, 
how can you win back the kind of trust that we've been talking about? Well, this is not specifically the kind of story that will uh, that will basically uh, build a relationship of trust because society continues to be polarized, unfortunately, in, in the country. But I still trust very much people's appreciation of good, independent, and professional information. And what I said in the previous panel is that when the state has moved into renationalizing the media and uh, conducting all these acquisitions of main media outlets and controlling the story altogether, my sense is that people's reaction, people's very radical reaction, is a complete opting out from the media altogether, which wasn't the case when there was a multiplicity of voice at least for a certain period of time right after the revolution. This is when people came and consumed the media and engaged in the debate. And I feel like there is a very interesting sort of withdrawal from that state media that is very interesting to follow. So. Okay. We're about to come to audience questions. We've got four microphones um, around the stage, uh, around the theater. Um, if we can bring up the house lights, and I'd like to invite those of you. I've got one more question that I want to put to Irina, but, before, but as I'm doing that, as Irina's tackling the question, I'd like those of you who have, um, who have, mic who have questions to go to, there's quest microphone one in the far left corner up in the, um, the balcony, um, microphone two in the, that corner, microphone three down here, and microphone four over in the corner over there. Irina, you have also found a way of bypassing the state authorities, haven't you, with, with your information? You're writing books, but it's not just that your books um, are going straight into the Russian audiences. Can you explain a little bit about how you, yeah. how you do that? I want, I want to explain because it's <laughs> optimistic. Um, uh, 10 years ago, uh, I lost a job in, uh, in the Russian publications, and it was clear that nobody wanted to hire me and my colleague Andrei Soldatov anymore, um, because we were independent journalists, journalists who are troubled even, even, the, even the independent media, because the security services is a very sensitive issue in Russia. And uh, we were desperate, and uh, really we just didn't know what to do, what to do next. And one, fr uh, one friend of because it was clear there was no job as a journalist for us in Russia, and one friend of us, uh, American friend of us, told us, uh, you, try, uh, you try to write a book, or oh, book, it so, 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 should be so difficult, and uh, nobody, nobody wants uh, to, uh, to publish our book in Russia because it could be dangerous for the publisher. For, so for the publisher, but American, an Amer the American friend told us, you should try uh, to do this in the United States and then uh, try to, uh, and then this book uh, definitely, uh, for sure, find its way to to Russia. So we, uh, so we tried. Uh, we wrote a book in English and uh, find a publisher uh, with the help of our American, uh, with American journalist and published. It was uh, The New Nobility is a book on the Russian security services. It was published in 2010 and after a year it was translated in Russia and, uh, and it, became, it became a bestseller in Russia. People uh, people bought this book and, uh, I don't know, it is still available online, uh, so, you can read it. So a book that was published in English and translated into Russian was fine. Yes, the book Russians that you always were sophisticated to, uh, to, uh, to 
uh, to find circumvent ways. <laughs> you know, our dissidents, even in the 19th century, uh, live abroad and send their, uh, their dissident magazines into Russia <laughs> to produce revolution. I love that story. Thank you. <laughs> right, let's take some audience questions. Let's start with uh, microphone number two up in the back. I would like to thank everybody for sharing their insights and experiences and thank you, Steve, for talking about the threats posed by the prosecution of Julian Assange. Um, I'm just wondering, though, about what I feel is the elephant in the room in that while we're sitting here talking about journalists in jail and human rights abuses, um, we've been told by the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention that Julian Assange has been arbitrarily detained for almost a decade for protected free speech activities. And we've been told by the UN Rapporteur on Torture that he's been um, suffered almost a decade of mobbing, judicial harassment, psychological torture and um, detention for free speech activities, in other words, journalism. So I'm just wondering what the panel thinks about that and has to say about that. Steve, shall I offer that to you? Well, his prosecution um, endangers uh, press rights not only in the United States but potentially in other Western countries because um, the filings in the case so far uh, describe a government theory of um, um, the journalist's function as a co-conspirator in, in, in national security crimes. And that is a principle that has been creeping at us. Uh, you know, obviously Julian Assange is not a popular figure in the United States uh, for the most part, and probably not as popular as he is in Australia. But that's all the more reason to be vigilant about the law that will be created out of this, uh, out of this prosecution and to, and to be uh, engaged in, in defending the principles um, of, of independent uh, journalism and, and speech. So that's what I would say about it. I don't know if the others have something they want to add. Okay. Uh, microphone number three. Thank you. Um, this one's for you, Peter Grester. You are on the record claiming that Julian Assange is not a journalist and that he, is, he recklessly dumped a trove of documents on his website that could endanger people's lives. But now, given that multiple Walkley Award-winning journalist Mark Davis has come forward stating this is all part of a well-crafted smear and lies campaign, Davis states he was an eyewitness to Assange's work with the Iraq war logs, saying he took great care with the information and working through the night alone, making sure he redacted 10,000 10, names as The Guardian and New York Times rushed to print before it was ready. Other prominent journalists in Australia, such as Quentin Dempster, have also recently come out saying Julian Assange is a journalist and needs the support of the media. In light of that, Will you rethink your earlier criticism and use your position to now advocate for Julian's freedom? Look, I, my, my, my view, I, I agree with Steve. I think that what Julian, regardless of, and I think there's a, there's a problem of getting hung up on, on definitions. Uh, my concern is what this means for for journalism. I recognise that Julian deserves um, a free trial, a fair trial. It doesn't look as though under the current circumstances he's, he's going to get that, and I think that's, that's a travesty. Um, and I also am deeply troubled by what that does mean for, for journalism. Um, you know, 
and, and for Julian as an individual as well. So, you know, I think that we, we do need to be looking at this case very, very carefully and trying to, um, un, and understanding, in understanding what its implications for journalism is we need to be pushing back on that. Right, microphone four. Thank you. Um, all of you have at some point touched on a theme of uh, technological change affecting um, how journalism is done and communicated around the world. Um, the former Baltimore Sun reporter, David Simon, uh, now writer, uh, TV writer, um, is not the only person to say that if you want good journalism, you've got to pay for it. Um, with the multiplicity of, kind of free-to-read content that's now available online, um, how do you see an economic model of journalism into the future supporting the kind of uh, excellent investigative reporting that you've all touched on? Um, anyone volunteers? Um, I can take also. Uh, you know, Russia is a very specific situation because uh, the most of TV channels and uh, mainstream media are under, under the Kremlin control. But, uh, and, in, and independent media exist in a, ver in a very small group. So uh, we have a few, several, several teams, uh, uh, several, uh, several investigative journalist teams who investigated into, independently investigated, investigate uh, uh, into the government corruption. And um, uh, they survive on, uh, on crowdfunding. And, um, and of course they're supported by some, I, I, I guess, uh, that they're supported by some, uh, some businesses and maybe some oligarchs who are, who are very critical of the Kremlin and, and not happy with, with Putin. This is the way, but uh, you can survive if you if you small group if you have small group of journalists. But if you are a mainstream, great media, you you need to hire it, uh, hundred journalists so uh, you can live only on subscription. Uh, this is a problem in Russia because people don't want to pay because they get used to free content on the internet. So, but because the interest to the uh, Anti-corruption investigations and uh, huge in Russia. They uh, they uh, they are ready to pay for anti-corruption investigations. That's what the situation is in Russia. Maria, I want to add and actually be positive on this note. Um, uh, the global South feels the brunt of the Silicon Valley decisions that run through American technology companies, and in many of our countries, people die because of this. For news groups, though, and this is where I'll be positive, um, Rappler's been forced to find uh, alternative solutions for a sustainable business model. We know that advertising is dead, but we also believe in our country that the mass base needs that information even more. We've rolled out a membership model. We've rolled out a crowdfunding model for our legal fees, which is like a third of our monthly fees now. Um, but... Uh, Here's what we did when the cases rolled out starting January last year. By April, advertising dropped 49%. And so we spent a week in a room with our team and said, what do we do as journalists that can carve off and actually be something that other companies will need. Think about it. This is a completely new world. No one knows what to do with unstructured big data or uh, even what um, what organizing, what brand building means, right? So, and that's what we've been able to do. We're actually better off this year than last year. Those networks of disinformation, when they're not hired by the state, they're freelancing against some of the companies. So um, th that's one. I think the second thing is we're also building a tech platform. 
Imagine if journalists are in charge of these decisions that, that are determining the public sphere. And one of the funnest things to do right now, we couldn't build this in 2017 because all our money to build it had gone to pay legal fees, but now we're ready, we're building it, we're in sprint six. What's the end goal? Instead of just optimizing for time on site and radicalizing people by keeping them there, right, which is what a lot of the platforms do, uh, what we've done is we are trying to design a platform that optimizes for civic engagement. If you're reading a story on climate change, we have 38 partners, including government at one point, and they are doing these things. So we've, we've already, we're in sprint five of sprint six. We hope to roll this out at the end of September. So there is hope. Let's jump into the technology, take some of those decision-making powers back, and really, truly, um, Embrace that the old world is gone, democracy is broken, and we need to fix it. Just very briefly, Peter, I, th I think the essence of it is that w our news organizations need to create journalism that's worth paying for, and you lot need to pay for it. <laughs> Take out your credit cards. Subscription is necessary because advertising can no longer subsidize the newsrooms that we relied on for the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I'm. I've inclined to agree, but I also tend to think that if we, we need to stop thinking of news as a commercial product to be bought and sold and think of it as a public good that needs to be financed by public money. And I'm not necessarily saying through government funds because... Um, I'm not suggesting that we give the governments the opportunity to decide who gets money and to decide when, that, when and how that money is distributed. There are models um, that take that um, get money through levies and ways of distributing that, and there are several international examples. I won't go through that; we haven't got time now. But I think that we do need to start thinking of it in the same, much the same way as we think of education and health, where there is a very clear role for the state, but at the same time there is a very major component for private enterprise as well. But the point is that we need health, education, and media for the good of and the health of, of the community. Right. Um, microphone number one. So hi, um, my question is for Lina Atallah. Um, given the censorship and crackdown in journalists in Egypt, I was wondering what do you think about the role of um, Egyptian journalists in Egypt and outside Egypt, like if they can work together to find a way to crack down on that um, censorship and how effective would that be um, instead of just, you know, for journalists, like trying to strengthen journalists in Egypt on its own, if that makes sense. It's, it's very hard to, to imagine a role by individual journalists in a setup like this. Uh, there are no outlets, basically, for, for journalists to publish their stories if they wanted to do some brief stories, basically, about what's happening in Egypt. I think what this is why I am so tied to this idea of the need to establish resilient institutions despite everything. This is why I'm trying to invest as much as possible in the institutional building process of my organization for it to continue to be a space um, that can host these independent journalists uh, whenever there's a chance for them to work. But it's, it's hard to imagine that 
there is a role to be played by independent journalists, especially those working for even privately owned media that had a voice at some point. Today, it's, they have very little say within their organizations. Um, and hence, I feel that um, there needs to be an intervention on this level of um, the, the institutional deficit uh, that we are dealing with. Um, uh, as for journalists worldwide, I think it's uh, it's the global crisis of what gets attention and and you know what makes it in the hierarchy of uh, newsworthiness. And it's you know sad to believe sometimes that uh, that Egypt is not so much uh, there, or you know it's it's hard to also come to terms with what makes it there in this in this hierarchy. But I feel that um, I, I regain trust in global journalism where, when I feel that journalists who have been committed to certain stories continue to follow it and not just uh, fall prey to this, um, to this hierarchy of what matters in terms of the news. Right. Um, microphone three. Yeah, my questions for uh, Mr. Cole. Uh, you've raised the significance of the case of Julian Assange in terms of sweeping evisceration of democratic rights, media freedoms in the United States. It's good to hear someone on our platform finally admit that. Um, my question goes, though, to the issue of the re response of the US media and their international counterparts, despite it now being glaringly obvious that the prosecution of Assange on 17 counts of espionage uh, carries with it sweeping implications, none of the official media Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post have yet re retracted uh, the sweeping sort of allegations, lies that uh, Assange and WikiLeaks were somehow Russian agents. You referred to Assange not being popular. Well, part of the reason is the slander and lies which have been told against him. How do you explain this standpoint in the American media where a journalist and publisher is facing espionage charges and they will not uh, make any public defence of him or, more importantly, combat the lies which have been told against him? Uh, it's the third question uh, on the same subject. I feel like I probably said what I had to say. Um, I, uh, yeah. Um. Forgive me, I skipped microphone number two, so if we can go to Yes, two. hi. Uh, thanks for coming, all of you. I'm a journalist student from UTS, and I've got a question for Irina. Irina, um, the Levada Center has recently been uh, labelled under the uh, Russian government's registration as uh, foreign agents. So. Uh, now, Russian reporters have um, an attached label of being spies and saboteurs. I want to know, how does that play out in the Russian public? Do they see Russian organisations, media organisations, as trustworthy? Or do they think that um, you guys are foreign agents and therefore um, your content is not trustworthy? Um... That's a good question. Uh, when it comes to Russian public, um, it's difficult to, sh to say for sure that all public very 
uh, you know that uh, when the government uh, decided to implement this law uh, on foreign agent, they um, uh, they made a um, very well thinking decision because uh, at, uh, this law was adopted under the annexation of Crimea, uh, and that time. Uh, the support, the support of Putin was very high in the country. 90%, more than 80% of Russian citizens supported his policy, his politics. So, uh, uh, labeling uh, independent organization, NGO organization, as foreign agents was accepted that time, uh, and was accepted by the public uh, very well. And people will agree with that. Uh, but um, and it, it is, this uh, this fact is very sad to me, but I have to accept accept this. But after that, uh, the uh, the, uh, the public mind uh, started changing um, a little bit, and uh, now uh, and today we can say that uh, being labeled as foreign agent uh, doesn't mean so much for the Russian public as it was three or five years ago, but it is still bad because uh, you have to uh, you have to put the sign foreign agent on your on every on every your publications on your website and so on. Uh, maybe liberal public in Moscow are not very sensitive to these things, but people. But uh, people in Russian regions and in the Russian province who are quite far from the Kremlin, crime far from the uh, primary sources of information, they are still very sensitive, very sensitive to this. So that's when you are labeled as as foreign agents, that's bad for your for your for your work. That's very bad. That's uh, affect badly for you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is um, that we are now out of time. But I want to say that, that question also. Um, has direct relevance to Australia, where foreign uh, where news organisations that have foreign connections, even Australian news organisations that are running stories supplied by foreign by foreigners, uh, have to register as foreign agents under the Espionage Act. It's deeply troubling. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Please join me for our extraordinary panel. Thank you very much. Maria Ressa, Irina Borogan, Lena Atala, and Steve Cole. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.